If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support this independent show and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. What a lot of people don't realize is that 90% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are actually just water vapor. And because of desertification due to agriculture, due to mining and urbanization covering the ground with impermeable surfaces, it means that the water cycle has been broken and the water vapor remains in the air because it can't find places to fall as rain. That was Ashley Brown, the co-founder of Ecosystem Restoration Camps, which is a nonprofit that builds research, training and innovation centers for ecological restoration all around the world. If you've ever felt helpless hearing about our global top-down lack of action addressing biodiversity loss, desertification, and climate change, and you're eager to get your hands dirty to make a direct difference in reversing these trends, this is a must-listen for you. And it's also going to be an open invitation for you to join the nonprofit's increasing number of ecosystem restoration camps around the globe. So stay tuned here as we're about to explore what it means for climate change that 90% of our greenhouse gases by volume is actually water vapor, what it takes to actually regenerate life and help to jumpstart the water cycle again on desertified lands, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I remember I was flying over Borneo to go to a music festival that was in, in a rainforest in Malaysia. And I saw out of the window of the plane rows and rows and rows of palm oil trees. But at the time, I didn't really know what they were. Mm. And I was expecting to look out of the window and just see like dense tropical rainforest. And I was so excited. And then I remember looking out and seeing just these rows and rows of trees and, and being really confused and thinking, that's not natural. You know, it's not just one type of tree that grows in lines like that. 
And then when I finally found out about it, I was really horrified. Immediately stopped eating anything with palm oil in it. Still really like adamant about it now. When I came back from that adventure time in my life, I did a master's degree and was going to a lot of like activist meetings and things. And I went to a talk about climate change. And I always thought of climate change as being something that was going to happen like at the end of my life, something that I didn't really need to worry about and something that I couldn't really change anyway. But then I went to this talk and I, I learned about how urgent the problem is. And that led me down a path of like doing a lot of research and finding out what the world's problems are. All of a sudden, the wool had been pulled off of my eyes and I could see exactly how everyone's actions were impacting the world. And the fact that no one was changing was making me just feel really crazy. Facebook's algorithms could tell that I was searching for all of these sorts of climate change solutions and stuff. <laughs> and I I was targeted. I don't know, maybe I wasn't, but I, I came across Green Gold. It's free to watch on YouTube. And it's it's this man, John D. Liu, traveling around the world, documenting all of these ecosystem restoration projects. And there's one in particular called the Lus Plateau in China that had been really heavily degraded to the point where all the vegetation had been removed. And whenever it rained, it would wash sediment off of the land and into the Yellow River. And that's why the Yellow River is called the Yellow River, because it always had all of the sediment running into it and making it look yellow. So a lot of people that lived in this area were really poor and really destitute, and they couldn't grow food there anymore. And the World Bank stepped in and spent a lot of money on restoring it. And so there's this incredible before and after image in the film where they superimpose the landscape restored onto the degraded image so you can like see the the vegetation growing out of it it was such a jaw-dropping moment for me and such a moment of like it doesn't have to be shit (laughs) (laughs) the world doesn't have to be damaged nature has this incredible ability to regenerate itself and seeing it in front of my eyes I was like wow okay this is really what I need to spend my life doing now So give us a background of why soil restoration and combating desertification is vital at this time. Where are we right now in terms of how much of our lands globally have been desertified due to human activity? That's a statistic that we're really keen to pin down because it's a great fact to communicate to people. But it varies in terms of the different reports that have been reporting on it. But people say between 40 and 60 percent. And do we know what most of these cases can be attributed to in terms of what are the sorts of human activities that led to such desertification? Big picture, it's it's the global economy. It's extracting resources and using them and then discarding them. And GDP being the ultimate quest for humanity to constantly produce things that is like the macro reason. The tangible activities that are causing it are agriculture. Agriculture is probably the main one. And within agriculture, it's industrial agriculture that's the issue. So removing the native vegetation, whatever that may be, it could be a grassland, it could be a forest, and planting a monocrop. So planting just one crop. Because when you plant one crop, 
nature doesn't work like that, right? In a natural ecosystem, you don't have just one organism. You have multiple and they're all interconnected and all feeding and supporting one another. Whereas our modern agriculture works with just one crop and it sees farming like like mining or like a factory. It's like this industrial mindset of you put something in, you spray something on and you get something out rather than thinking holistically in, in the way that an ecosystem functions. And when that happens, it means that if you just have one crop, whatever insect naturally likes to feed on that crop, you don't have any other plants that would attract other insects that could eat that insect. And in a natural ecosystem, everything's in balance. Whereas if you just have one crop, if you have one pest, there's no defense against it. And then it wipes out the whole crop, which is what then led to the need to use pesticides, insecticides and fungicides. And when you use those, it doesn't just kill that one insect. It kills all of the beneficial insects and microbes that live in the soil. Once you kill the soil food web off, then there's nothing to naturally fertilize the soil, which means that you then have to spray fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer, which also is a greenhouse gas. So it just goes on and on and on. And the more that you remove vegetation from the soil, so when you you plant, say you plant a field of wheat, you plant it, it grows, you, you remove it, and then the land is bare until the seeds grow again. And in hot countries and in places where there's not a lot of rain, if there's no vegetation covering the soil, the sun bakes it. It becomes really hard and it's called a hard pan. And when the land does that, then there's no water and oxygen that can infiltrate. And then that's what causes desertification. Plowing makes it worse as well. When you plow the soil food web, you, you physically like cut it up and it dies which means that you have to keep plowing in order for there to be oxygen and water that can infiltrate and it just becomes this vicious cycle that a lot of farmers are are caught in now and the subsidy system perpetuates it because they are paid to produce a certain crop because it's a cash crop that can be traded in the global market etc. So yeah, we got ourselves into a bit of a mess. <laughs> right. So of course, one of our big existential crises of today is climate change. And a lot of people focus on the question of what can we do to lower our emissions from human activity? And that is certainly a very important question to ask. But on the flip side of that equation is how do we close this loop so that we can sequester the carbon and draw down carbon because as of right now, we have been degrading our lands and our ecosystems that actually cycle the carbon. So what mm-hmm. is the relationship between desertification and climate change that we should know? And what is the potential of reversing the trend of desertification? The greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are multiple. There isn't, it's not just carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is the one that's got the most attention, but What a lot of people don't realize is that 90% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are actually just water vapor. Mm. Everyone learns the water cycle at school, but a lot of people don't really think about how our actions can impact it. So like I was saying, when, when you remove vegetation from the earth, which is done 
not just through agriculture, but through urbanization as well, because we've put concrete over so much of, of the earth's surface now. It's broken the water cycle. So when there's vegetation, trees on the surface of the earth, water vapor rises from the ground and then is met by water vapor that falls from the air. And when those two meet, they form clouds and then it rains. And because of desertification due to agriculture, due to mining and urbanization covering the ground with impermeable surfaces, it means that the water cycle has been broken and the water vapor remains in the air because it can't find places to fall as rain, which is what causes droughts and flooding as well. That's one of the main ways that desertification is causing climate change, as well as the fact that the the more obvious reason of vegetation photosynthesizing, which sequesters carbon and releases oxygen, and other ecosystems as well that you wouldn't consider to sequester carbon as much, but very much do, like peat bogs, seaweed meadows, and that kind of thing. So instead of just focusing on that singular question of how do we reduce our emissions, we really also have to emphasize how do we restore our carbon cycle? How do we restore our water cycle and these holistic okay. ecosystems that help to regulate our climate? Yeah, that's it. That's why ecosystem restoration is such a powerful solution at this time because nature knows how to regulate itself. What we've been doing to the land has been a very unnatural way of using it. And like you said, yeah, we've broken the water cycle and the carbon cycle, but those can be restored if the ecosystems are restored. They're saying now that even if we stopped emitting all of our greenhouse gases through our industrial use, like burning for energy and transport and all that kind of thing, we need to draw the carbon down. One of my other inspirations was this book by Paul Hawkin called Drawdown. Don't know if you've if you know it, but for those of you who are listening who haven't read it, I recommend that you read it. And a lot of the solutions in that book are ones that we are enacting at ecosystem restoration camps. I know something that's really frustrated me personally is People talking about solutions to drawing down carbon and how do we reduce these, this, all of this emission, but then how do we sequester them through technological means? So maybe yeah. through machi machinery that will suck down the carbon and trap yeah. it somewhere. But in my head, I'm like, that doesn't restore the ecosystem because that's just one very small part of the whole picture. That doesn't address the root causes of this, all of this to begin with. Yeah, I think it's a... It's a follow on from what caused the problem in the first place, which is that humanity is superior to the rest of life on Earth and that we are this super intelligent being that can solve all of these issues and, and that we need to create something ourselves. It's like our own ego and our hubris that we need to create the solution ourselves rather than sitting back and being humble and saying, no, actually, we don't have the answers and that the rest of life on Earth does. Well, in light of everything that we just talked about, you started your first ecosystem restoration camp in 2017. It was Camp Altiplano in Murcia, which is in southeastern Spain. What condition was this region in that made you feel like this is where you're going to have your first restoration project take root? This part of Spain used to be oak savanna, which is a mixture of grassland and, and forest and like patches of oak trees. So it's never been like 
super moist <laughs> as a place, <laughs> but it has had a functional ecosystem there for hundreds of years. They say that one of the reasons for the desert- for the deforestation that happened there originally was cutting down trees to build the Spanish Armada. So that was one of the the original causes. From then on, it was industrial agriculture for all of the reasons that I've just stated. But Spain in particular has a problem with tourism. There are what, millions of tourists that visit Spain each year. It's the, It has the highest number of tourists that visit it than anywhere else on earth. Because of that, a lot of development has gone in, especially along the coast, which has absorbed way more water than the country naturally has. So we're talking about golf courses, we're talking about luxury condos and stuff for tourists, swimming pools, that kind of thing, which has really sucked the the region dry. And climate change as well has massively reduced rainfall. One of the reasons why we chose it to be our first camp was we have a lot of supporters. We're, we're a European organization registered in the Netherlands. So we wanted a place that people in Europe could visit easily. It's a large area for agriculture. They grow a lot of Europe's fruit and vegetables. So strategically speaking, it has a really big need because the land is really degraded. And it also is trying to grow a lot of the fruit and veg that we see in our supermarkets in the UK and places like that. So there's a direct connection because it's where our food comes from. And we work with an organization called Common Land. And Common Land has this approach to landscape restoration where they, rather than having one return, a financial return for your investment, they've created a four returns model. So it's return of inspiration, return of, there's different types of capital, not just financial capital. There's like social capital, etc. I recommend you look into their framework. So they are basically saying to investors, you can invest in landscape restoration and you will get these four returns. This model has been very popular and they've raised a lot of investment to restore landscapes. One of their major projects is in this part of Spain. So they're working with 60 landowners who have, between them, they manage 620,000 hectares of land, which is massive. It's enough that if it was restored, it would restart the water cycle and bring rain back to the region. And John Liu works for Common Land, the guy who made this documentary and the one who founded Ecosystem Restoration Camps. And what he realized from visiting there and other, other land restoration projects was there was a gap between the people that have the land that want to restore it, but don't have the finances like there if take farms for example they don't have the extra income to pay a whole host of of people to come and implement these restorative regenerative techniques because if you're going to do things in a regenerative way you need a lot more hands you know like pre-industrial agriculture before big machinery was was invented agriculture would supply jobs to most of the human population before the industrial revolution etc so we're going to need a lot more hands to help landowners transition like planting trees and building soil and all this stuff needs more hands than currently are available in, in industrial agriculture so there's that and then on the other hand there were all of these people who who are really keen to physically do something to fix the earth 
and often a lot of the major conservation charities that there isn't an inroad for everyday people to get involved so realizing this john was like well why don't we connect the two why don't we do something really simple where people can come together they can share food they can play music they can discuss philosophy around the campfire and support the people who need the support and give the people who want the experience the experience and that's where the ecosystem restoration camp idea came from Yeah, I was going to say what really inspired me about your approach is how you've turned these restoration projects into camps that obviously a lot of people love getting to gather with people they love or getting to meet other people as well. So I love that you combined the two. And I'm wondering how you see this being more able to engage a broader audience and perhaps inspire more people to participate in this work. Well, the thing about camping is that if the land is there and the the infrastructure to feed people is there, then you can go and you can take your tent and you can you can stay for a few weeks and you can take part in the restoration of an ecosystem. And it's it's a really unique idea that a lot of people really love. It just feels really accessible because everyone has a tent. Everyone who's been camping knows how like cheap and easy it is to just go pitch your tent, pick up a spade, and go. That was one of the things that we wanted it to be really easy and accessible for everyone. In California, there's a group of people who have gathered together after the last, well, not the wildfire that we've just had, but the one last year. They like tore through this place called Paradise, which is horribly ironic. Destroyed loads of people's homes and people died and it was really traumatic. What this camp model has done for them is it's been a way for them to heal from their traumatic experience by coming together with their tents that camp they have a a mobile model so they have all of the stuff that they need for camping experiences that last a week or two where they can fold out compost toilets they can fold out a kitchen they can fold out all of this stuff people come they, they pitch their tents and they they get stuck in and take part in the restoration of their landscape which has proven to be really therapeutic and really beautiful for for the people living there. Is there potential for such restoration work to actually make these ecosystems more resilient to wildfires in the future? Yeah, definitely. When your soil is healthy, when it has all of the microorganisms in it that it naturally should have, it retains a lot more water. There's something called the soil carbon sponge, So when the soil is healthy, it sequesters more carbon and it means that it has this like porous texture to it, which just naturally absorbs more water. And the more vegetation that there is on the land, the more that the water can infiltrate and be held there. So yeah, healthy soil and healthy and a healthy ecosystem with lots of vegetation that's thriving will naturally mean that the the land is more hydrated. That feels like a really grounding reminder and thing to keep in mind because people talk about these wildfires happening and people feel really helpless, like looking to the government, they're only making things worse. What can we do? But it's I think it's really helpful and grounding to remind ourselves that we can work to restore these ecosystems and again, restore the water cycle, the carbon cycle right here to make these ecosystems more resilient. Yeah, um, we, I, it's not just a nice thing to do now. <laughs> it's like really essential to our survival. 
I saw photos of the before and after of your restoration work, and honestly, seeing evidence of things like this is what makes me so hopeful about what regenerative practices can make possible in healing our lands and in making our lands more resilient. So, in practice, what does it take to revive desertified land and to bring back life into the soils, and therefore within that ecosystem as well? So, there are various methods, and I think it might be helpful to. Go through the ones that we did at the camp in Spain because that is a very desertified place. The first thing that you need to do is make sure that the soil can absorb water and hold water. There's two ways that you can do that. First, go and observe, especially when it's raining, to see where the the water is running to. When land is desertified, it doesn't have like I said, the ability to absorb into the soil. So it just runs off and it takes the the topsoil and the sediment and the nutrients that are there away with it, which is also another cause of desertification is like water and wind erosion. So finding a way that you can stop that from happening. What we did was we dug some ponds and dams in the right position so that when it rains, the water that will run off the land from other places, will fall into these ponds. And then we built a big dam so that if it rains really heavily, the water doesn't run off into the camp. So we did that. We then measured the ground to see how hard it was, how compact it was. I told you earlier about the causes of compaction. And you can do that with something called a, an, an infiltrometer, where you can measure how, or a penetr- it's penetrometer, to see how hard the land is. Because if if it's created that hard pan, then water and oxygen can't infiltrate to feed soil life. So you won't have any soil life unless you've decompacted it. So we used a machine called a subsoiler or a deep ripper or a yeoman's plow. It's got a lot of different names. And that is like a normal plow, but instead of plowing the land with lots of teeth, you just have a, a few of them that are really deep so that you can basically rip the land open which you can imagine this like sigh of relief as the land is ripped open and all of a sudden water and and oxygen can get down there into the lower level once we'd done that we laid down a a lot of compost that we had to buy because at the time we didn't have enough biomass this is another problem with with restoring desertified landscape getting biomass is is really expensive (laughs) in places like the uk you just have like loads of leaves and loads of like dead wood everywhere and making compost is really easy but in this place a most of the farmers don't use it and b getting hold of biomass is really hard because there's barely any trees there's barely any vegetation anyway so we've spent a lot of money on compost and we spread it across the land to provide some fertility and then we sowed a cover crop of a mixture of 30 different species of nitrogen-fixing grasses, leguminous plants, and wildflower seeds so that we would be able to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and also provide food for pollinators. That grew up really nicely. It was really green there and it was there were insects everywhere. And yeah, that was like a really special time. Then when it all went to seed and went brown in the summer, when when it stopped raining, went really dry again, we brought in a thousand sheep and we did something called holistic grazing, 
which is Alan Savory, this ecologist kind of gamekeeper dude from Zimbabwe, came up with this pattern, this design for grazing animals that mimicked the way that wild herds would move across grasslands when being chased by predators. So they'd move in big packs and they'd be very bunched together and they'd never stay in one place for too long. So another cause of desertification is overgrazing. If you look at places where natural predators have been removed, take Scotland, for example. When people think of Scotland, they go to Scotland and they're like, oh, wow, it's so beautiful. But actually what they don't realize is that it's, it's a wet desert. There's no trees growing. And that's because there's so many deer. Whenever a tree tries to establish itself, it just gets eaten because it's like deer's favorite food. And the reason that is, is because there's no more wolves to control the population of deer. It's like the Yellowstone National Park story with the wolves that completely changed the ecology. So we borrowed the neighbor's sheep (laughs) (laughs) and we set up electric fences to keep them in pens that were quite small so that they wouldn't overgraze. And the action of eating the seeds, pooing them out again, urinating and stamping down on the stalks of the cover crop created a mulch, which is like a a layer of vegetation over the ground that stops evaporation, keeps moisture in, and is also covered with free fertilizer. So we did that. At the same time, the ponds that we dug had become like ecological gold mines. It was really incredible how quickly life found those spots, seeing as there's no water sources for miles around. And within six months, there was so much life in there. It was crazy, like dragonflies, water water snakes, water rats, loads of frogs and toads. So yeah, that was happening around the edges. It almost became a wetland. When it rained, it became a wetland. The, the ponds would spread. So we planted a lot of trees in that area because that was the place where it never been plowed that that bit so there's intact soil life there so we planted trees in that area to create a windbreak to protect from wind erosion and the pieces of the land that were very very degraded with like no organic matter in them you know you picture like white sand almost rather than soil those areas needed another iteration of what we'd done before. The compost laying, the cover cropping and the holistic grazing, that that for some sections that were really bad, we needed to do that again. But the sections that were growing in with with life and were able to support trees were planted with with a system that mimics what the farmers in the region do. Because you have to remember, a lot of people want to, when they think of ecosystem restoration, they they think of like vast forests and untouched ecosystems that are natural. But agriculture is the main cause of landscape degradation. So unless we can change the way that we grow food, we're just going to keep destroying it. Like the Amazon is being destroyed right now because of agriculture, right? They're the rainforest in Indonesia. It's it's food based things. So we needed to come up with a system that would mimic an ecosystem and would be a food, an edible ecosystem that could encourage the landowners in the region to switch to this way of growing food. So we looked at what the farmers were farming. And in that area, it's mainly almonds, sheep, 
and some farmers are doing like small scale other things, but those are the two main foodstuffs. And we were thinking, well, we don't need to make money from this piece of land. Other farmers are trapped in the cycle of, of debt and needing to pay their bills so they can't break away easily from this form of agriculture. But we don't need to make money from this land just yet. So why don't we experiment? So we planted a, a system that uses the almond tree, but we also planted nitrogen fixing trees. We planted another cover crop around the trees and then we planted aromatics because aromatics grow well in dry areas. They don't need a lot of rain. There are a lot of natural aromatics that grow in that area and they can be high value because they produce essential oils, which are very sought after these days for perfumes and cosmetics. So yeah, that's that's where we're at now. We also made a lot of compost tea, which is food for microorganisms that they really love. Oh yeah, and something else really cool that we did, I forgot to explain. <laughs> we made something called indigenous microorganisms. Indigenous microorganisms are microorganisms that are needed to be put back into the ground so that it can recolonize the soil and spread the soil food web. And the way that you create them is you get some cooked rice, you put it in something kind of breathable. So we use like very fine mesh, wire mesh. You bury that underneath an old tree in a place where the ecosystem hasn't been disrupted or destroyed. So like under a tree with a lot of like leaf litter from that tree covering it. You leave it and then you come back and the surface of the rice has been covered with little specks of like black, yellowy, purpley stuff. You know, it's really mad to look at. You don't really know what it is. And then you mix it with molasses and the molasses feed the microbes, the microorganisms. And you then mix that with wheat bran and that feeds it more. And then you mix that with soil. So whenever we planted anything, we put mycorrhizal fungi, which is needed to recreate the, the mycorrhizal web underneath the soil. And we put these microorganisms in. So that's those are two really cool techniques for rebuilding soil. And then once you've once it's there, then you need to continuously feed it with compost teas and what builds soil organic matter is those microorganisms living, multiplying and dying, and their bodies become this rich soil that builds up over time. It must have been incredible for you to witness firsthand the potential in this regenerative work and to see this land go from being pretty much dead and desertified to having all sorts of biodiversity there. And I just wanted to touch on one point you mentioned earlier. People often talk about overgrazing, and I think the conclusion that people often draw from learning about how overgrazing has been harmful to the environment is that we should remove animals from the landscape. But it sounds yeah. like that's actually not the case. It's more so that we have to learn from how natural ecosystems function and how plants and animals and microorganisms naturally interact in, in synergistic ecosystems. Yeah, of course. You can't have an ecosystem without animals in it. It doesn't make any sense. If you look at, at natural ecosystems, animals are critical. They're like a crucial part of it. 
and yeah, that really changed my views on animal agriculture as well, because before I was very much reductionist in my thinking that you need to reduce you need to just take the animals away because they're the problem. But that's that's not actually the case. I mean, whether you eat them or not is a different story and that's up to you. But in terms of ecosystem restoration, we have to mimic the way that nature works in how we grow our food. So animals need to play a key role in that. Well, oftentimes hearing environmental news today can make us feel depressed and without hope. And also looking at pictures of desertification happening in real time and the shrinking size of freshwater ecosystems is also really disheartening. But you've, of course, seen and know firsthand what is possible when we bring people together to restore our soils and regenerate healthy ecosystems. So at this point in time, what do you think we need most right now to be able to turn our vast areas of currently degraded lands into ones that are thriving with life and biodiversity again? We need people to get involved. (laughs) (laughs) It's as simple as that. I mean, we need funds. Our model is is cheaper than the List Plateau, for example, which costs millions, but it still costs something. We need everybody to chip in. So whether that's donating trees or whether it's donating tools or just spreading the word about this or if you can physically get to a camp then please go we need people to become members because members are how we fund our work and you can join as a, as a member from as little as five euros a month which is very doable for a lot of people we just need to do it now when we have more camps and more places people will feel more likely to get involved right now we've only been operating for two and a half years and we've got six camps with four more being added soon but we we need to make sure that there's a camp that's close enough to where everyone lives so that they don't have to travel far to uh to take part in this and one of the reasons why i'm talking to you is because i really want this solution to to be heard by a lot of people so that people know more about it i feel like we're still very young and a lot more people could know about us than than do. So I'm hoping that that will help. I'm personally really excited because I feel like at this point, a, a lot of people feel helpless and they really want to do something that can be really impactful. But oftentimes just making these little lifestyle decisions at home, we can't really feel the impact of that. So mm. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing and for people's ability to participate firsthand in this regenerative work so that they can really be helpful in in helping to mitigate climate change in, in a very direct way. To wrap things up here in our conversation, if our listener would like to take part in helping to restore our lands, either through your camps located around the world right now, or even just within their own regions, if you don't currently have camps there, what would you recommend they do? If you do have a camp near to you or you're happy to travel to one, then definitely go because that's the most direct way that you can make a change. Like I said, you can become a member, which would be incredibly helpful because the more members we have, the more funds we have, the more funds we have, the more camps we can open, the more trees we can plant, etc. But if you want to stay at home, then we also have created, we've called them recipes for restoration, which are infographic guides with all of our techniques. So if you've got a garden, if you've got a front garden, you can learn the techniques for restoring degraded land through these infographic guides. We're just about to launch an online course which teaches people 
It shows them the projects that are happening around the world that are restoring each of the ecosystems in each biome and a module that's specifically on business models. So if you are really wanting to start a project like this yourself, then you can take this online course and it will. The fifth module of the course is you creating a restoration plan for a local ecosystem that's close to your heart, which includes business cases for how to fund it. So that's something that you can do. You can join us on Facebook. We have a really active Facebook community. We've got our official Facebook group and then we've got a community group, which has got nearly 25,000 members. Everyone who's in that group is either an ecosystem restoration practitioner or they want to become one. So there's a lot of mass participatory support there for you if you have any questions. And you can contact us directly through our website if you want to start your own camp. We have a camp interest form you can fill in and that'll come to us. There are lots and lots of ways that you can get involved. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? There's an amazing writer in the UK called George Bombio. He's written two books that I really recommend. One's called Feral, which talks about his journey of moving out of London to Wales and feeling really excited about living closer to nature and then realizing that a lot of the landscapes have been destroyed. And like I was saying, in Scotland, they've become wet deserts. He talks in that book about the need to rewild our landscapes and rewild ourselves. And that kind of kicked off this whole rewilding movement, which is happening in, in the UK and in Europe. So that's a really incredible book. He also wrote one called Out of the Wreckage. Talks about the problems of neoliberalism and how we have, why we've struggled to move past this system that's so clearly failing us. And he thinks that it's from a lack of a new inspiring story, you know, like the story that we've told ourselves up until now of like the American dream and all that kind of thing is clearly hasn't really happened that way. So we need a new way of thinking about our purpose. And he has an idea which is called the politics of belonging. So belonging to one another, belonging to the earth, belonging to the web of life. And it's really beautiful and really gives like a really clear next step for humanity. Another amazing writer is Judith Schwartz, who actually is the reason why I'm talking to you today, because she told me about you and connected me with you. 
She's incredible. She wrote a book called Water in Plain Sight, which taught me a lot about this water cycle thing that I was talking about. She's just about to release a new book. And in that book, she talks about ecosystem restoration camps. And she went to visit our camp in Spain. And she's she's got lots of lovely interviews from the campers who were there. And so, yeah, I recommend reading that one as well. And to our listener, we actually had Judith D. Schwartz in a past episode as well. So make sure to go back to tune into that one. It was definitely one of our most popular and profound episodes. So I highly recommend going back to search for that one. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I tell myself that people are inherently good and we have gotten stuck in a toxic system that is the problem and it's not that humanity is inherently not good i have a lot of compassion for the people who are stuck in that cycle i see around me more and more every day that people are coming to terms with and realizing that not only do we have the power to destroy but we also have the power to restore and regenerate that's what I realized when I watched Green Gold and it completely changed my whole outlook. I went from being really depressed and scared to jumping out of bed every day, like excited to read my emails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Well, I recently moved to the north of the UK out of London. London is an amazing place in terms of everything that's going on there, but it's also very draining for your energy because there's so many people and so much traffic and noise and a lot of people are stressed. So my partner and I moved to a national park in the north of England a month ago. And that feels like a really big thing that I did for my health. Mm. (laughs) Lots of climbing and walking and running and living somewhere where you can see the stars at night. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Ecosystem restoration camps. (laughs) 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 And I know you're working on expanding your projects as well. So we're really excited to see you continue to expand and hopefully for these camps to come to places where we can easily access as well. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? A lot of people are standing up and saying no more. Greta Thunberg's effect on people I went to a Fridays for the Future strike in London recently and I saw so many people there and I've also been on the fringes of Extinction Rebellion and seen a lot of changes in the way that governments use language in comparison to just five years ago when I was talking about this stuff and I was getting kind of like people don't really get it and I felt really alone Mm. now I feel like it's it's at the forefront of everyone's minds and I take my parents as a benchmark of normality. (laughs) (laughs) And they have changed so much about the way that they live. They only buy organic food. They've bought hybrid cars. They're going on holidays without flying. They're like voting for parties that have like the most hard hitting policies, climate policies. They're like planting trees, all this stuff. So Mm. if, if they're a a benchmark of everyday people, then that makes me feel hopeful. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Ashley's work, you can head to www.ecosystemrestorationcamps.org. And you can also follow them on Facebook at Ecosystem Restoration Camps, on Instagram at ecosystem.restoration.camps, and on Twitter at EcoResCamps. As always, you'll be able to find all of these links in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Ashley, thank you so much for being here for this incredibly inspiring work that you're doing and also for sharing your story and expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Nature is incredibly resilient and incredibly powerful. And if we just let her be, then she'll come springing back and all of our problems will be resolved. Thank you.